0: Here in the United States, there's always been rivalries between the East Coast and the West Coast. You have the Celtics versus the Lakers, Broadway versus Hollywood, Bagels and Locks versus avocado toast. And of course, we have the big one, Disney World versus Disneyland. But the most famous rivalry has to be the hip hop battle of the 90s. On the West Coast, you had artists like Snoop Dogg, Dr. Dre, and Tupac. Over on the East Coast, you had Biggie Smalls and Puff Daddy. But there's one rivalry that started a long time before that.
1: Only this time, it was a rivalry not between artists, but between instrument makers. That's 20,000 Hertz producer Andrew Anderson. And this one created new sounds that were beyond the wildest dreams of musicians that came before. It led to
0: whole new genres like disco, post-punk, and electronic dance music.
1: It represented two different philosophies about the relationship between a musician and their instrument. It's one of the biggest stories in music history that you've probably never heard. And it starts all the way back in a New York hospital in 1933. On May 23rd, 1933, a baby is born in Queens, New York City. His parents call him Robert, but he'll be known to everyone as Bob. Four years later,
0: and almost 2,500 miles away in Los Angeles, another baby is born. His
1: parents name him Donald, but that quickly gets shortened to Don. Both boys show an early interest in engineering. While still at school, Bob builds his own musical instruments, like simple electronic organs, from plans he finds in magazines. Meanwhile, Don makes his own radios. After high school, Bob studies electrical engineering at Columbia, and he keeps building musical instruments. He especially loves theremins, which have a distinctive sound that is perfectly in tune with the sci-fi style of the 1950s. He also plays piano and gets pretty good, although he never considers himself a musician. On the other coast, Don studies physics and music at
0: Caltech. He works on the Gemini rocket that takes some of the first US astronauts into space. After college, Don finds himself at the heart of the counterculture movement in California. He hangs out with poets, musicians.
1: He even grows his hair long and wears a big, bushy mustache. Meanwhile, on the East Coast, far from the free love of California, Bob's life is following a more traditional path. He starts a business building theremins, and before long he's one of the biggest suppliers in the U.S. But then Bob gets interested in a new
2: technology. Synthesizers. Prior to the mid-1960s, electronic music wasn't nearly as codified as it is today. That's music journalist and synth historian Ryan Gaston. The tools and techniques were not at all standardized. And there weren't just instruments that you could go to a shop and buy. At the time, electronic music was very much do-it-yourself. Experimental musicians were using repurposed scientific test equipment. So stuff left over from World War II, like tape recorders, oscillators, and test tone generators. Kind of misusing those for musical purposes. There was one commercially built synthesizer out there, but it wasn't exactly portable. One of the only other notable historical devices was the RCA synthesizer, which is a kind of room sized contraption that uses punch cards.
0: Before magnetic tape came along, a lot of computers were programmed using punch
1: cards. These were literally cards with holes punched in them, which told the computer how to behave using the binary language of ones and zeros. If there was a hole punched in the card, that was a one. If there was no hole, And that was a zero. By stacking hundreds or even thousands of these cards together, you could create a computer program, or in this case, write a piece of music. Here's a tune
0: created with punch cards that was recorded on that giant RCA synthesizer. It's a Bach piece called the Well-Tempered Clavier. And here's a 1959 piece called Study for One Symbol Stroke by Polish composer Wojciech Katoński. It was created by cutting and manipulating magnetic tape.
1: But whichever method you used, it just took a really long time. It's
2: definitely not an immediate process. It takes a lot of work to go from the point of having a musical idea to actually hearing it realized, sometimes days or weeks of work just to get a few seconds of music.
1: For musicians and composers, this was pretty frustrating. But then Bob had a chance meeting that changed everything.
2: Basically, Bob and Herb Deutsch who was an experimental electronic musician, met by
0: happenstance at a conference. They started talking about creating an electronic instrument
2: that musicians could actually play. Bob was inspired, and before long, he came up with a solution. The most revolutionary concept was introducing this idea of control voltage. Control voltage is a small electrical signal that changes how electronic components in a circuit behave. People were suddenly able to program the way the synthesizer should behave and hear the result immediately. For example, you could use control voltage to change the pitch of a note.
1: And the change was instant. You didn't have to cut up tape or learn how to program a computer the size of a building. You could play his synthesizer just like a piano.
2: The difference between making a plan and taking days to realize it and making a plan and immediately hearing the result for a musician is a huge deal. Musicians could suddenly make much more intuitive decisions and could hear the results of their decisions right off the bat. Soon enough, Bob's prototype
0: was ready, and in late 1964, he released
1: the Moog Synthesizer. That's right, THE Bob Moog, legendary synth
0: pioneer. Most of you have probably heard his name before, although you might have heard it
1: pronounced as Moog. 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 But it's definitely pronounced Moog. Trust us on this one. Anyway. Regardless of how you pronounce his name, there's no denying that Moog's synth was brilliant. It had 12 keys,
0: which meant that anyone familiar with Western music could play it. It responded to the performer instantly. It was small enough that it could fit into any recording studio.
1: And best of all, it sounded amazing. The age of synthesized music had arrived. But it wasn't just control voltage that made the Moog revolutionary. It was also its modular structure.
2: The idea behind a modular synthesizer is that it's made out of several individual components that you could assemble into a singular instrument. There are basically three main types of modules. The first type is a module that makes sound, most commonly an oscillator which produces a constant tone, or a noise source, which produces a white noise. Another category of modules are modules for processing sound. So these are things like filters, which can change the brightness of a sound, or amplifiers, which change the loudness of a sound. And the other type of module are control sources, which are just ways that you alter the behavior of an oscillator or a sound source or the sound processors over time.
0: You can think of these three modules like cooking. The signal sources are your ingredients. The filter modules are the seasonings, which add or subtract from the original flavors. And the control source is the oven, which modifies
1: the ingredients over time. But a modular synthesizer can do so much more than that. In fact, to push that cooking analogy a little bit further, if you could cook with a modular synthesizer, you'd actually be able to make the food change flavor once it was already in your mouth. Mm. Mmm which, let's face it, is a pretty weird idea. Although Moog's instruments were expensive, about $100,000 in today's money, Bob managed to start
2: selling them to recording studios. Bob was quite focused early on on marketing the instrument and making sure it got into the hands of musicians that would help make that possible.
1: By the late 60s, the Moog was appearing in songs by The Beatles...
0: It was also being used by progressive rock bands like Emerson, Lake, and Palmer.
1: And, perhaps most famously, Wendy Carlos's album, Switched On Back, was recorded entirely with a Moog.
0: But while Bob was on the East Coast crafting the Moog synthesizer, Don was over on the West Coast working
3: on his own invention. He was brought in to the San Francisco Tape Music Center originally to design an instrument. That's composer and academic David Rossenboom. And Don saw what they wanted, looked at what their design was and said, that's not the way to do this. And he went away and he came back later with his own design, which was amazing. Like Bob, Don gave his own
1: name to his first synthesizer. He called it the Buchla 100. Now, Don Buchla's name might not be as well known as Bob Moog's, but his reputation is legendary among electronic music nerds like me. And when you hear what his synths actually sound like, it's easy to understand why. They are totally unique.
0: Here's one of the first compositions created with the Bukla 100. It's called Silver Apples of the Moon by Morton Subotnick. And here's a song called Better Find Out for Yourself by pop musician Buffy St. Marie.
1: These far-out sounds reflected Don's brilliance as an engineer.
3: Don was one of the most virtuosic designers I ever met in my life. He could sit down and once an idea was clear, he would draw out the circuits, and then he would have the printed circuit boards made. Most of the time, he didn't even make a prototype. And it was amazing how they would come back and then they would work. But with that brilliance came an intense personality. Sometimes that might lead to a little bit of a private way of interacting with people that might be misperceived as being kind of dark. He was not the easiest person to get to know for most people. But behind it all was an iron protection of his own creativity and his own ability to make decisions about what he was going to do. So if that meant
1: building a synthesizer without a keyboard, or
0: deliberately adding features that turned whatever you played into chaos, then Don was just going to go ahead and do that. You could say that if Bob Moog was the Thomas Edison of synths, then Don Buchler was Nikola Tesla. Before long, synthesizers were taking over the world, and Don and Bob's creations were leading the pack. The competition would never catch up, or so they thought. That's coming up after the break. Why should you learn another language with Babbel? Well, there are a ton of reasons, but let's see how many I can fit into 60 seconds. First, Babbel works fast. You can start having conversations in another language in as little as three weeks. Next, it makes overseas vacations more fun and less stressful. I used it all the time on my last trip to Italy. If you work with foreign collaborators, Babbel can help you deepen those relationships. It's a fun thing to do when you need a break, and it's way better than doom scrolling. Babbel teaches you about other cultures. Speaking for myself, learning something new just makes me feel good. It's very affordable. And finally, signing up for Babbel helps support 20,000 Hertz. Okay, make that eight reasons, or otto ragioni, as they'd say in Italian. To get started on a new language today, here's a special limited time deal for 20,000 Hertz listeners. Get 55% off your Babbel subscription right now at babbel.com slash 20k. This offer is only available for our listeners. That's B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash two zero k for 55% off. Babbel.com slash 20k. Rules and restrictions may apply. Congratulations to Armand Piku for correctly guessing last episode's mystery sound. That's the sound of a Sega Dreamcast starting up. The startup sound was created by a Japanese composer named Ryuchi Sakamoto. He's also a member of an electronic band called Yellow Magic Orchestra. Here's one of their tracks from 1979. And here's this episode's Mystery Sound. If you know what that sound is, submit your guess at the web address mystery.20k.org. Anyone who guesses it right will be entered to win a super soft 20,000 hertz t-shirt. In the mid-60s, Bob Moog released the first commercially available synthesizer. It was immediately picked up by musicians thanks to its simple interface. Pop
1: music would never sound the same again. At almost the exact same time, Don Buchler released his own synth. And the electronic ideas behind it were spookily similar. They were both powered by small electric currents called control voltage, and they both had a modular structure that allowed anyone to build their own custom synth.
0: But while the electronics were similar, Don's ideas were
1: very different from Bob's. Where the Moog was sold to working musicians, the Buchla was really only bought by cutting-edge composers who were friends with Don. And while the Moog was predictable, the Buchla had a mind of its own. For example,
0: when you played a note on a Moog, you'd get the same result every time.
1: But when you played a note on a Buchla... you never really knew what was going to happen. It was the difference between riding a thoroughbred horse in a dressage competition and riding a buck bronco at a rodeo. As well as having a different feel, the two synthesizers were completely incompatible. Buchla Modules only worked with other Buchla Modules and vice versa. Although, one inventor did come up with a way of combining them together. The result was a synth called Tonto, which was used by groups like the Doobie Brothers and Stevie Wonder. But thanks to all the complicated wiring, Tonto was enormous. So it was really only used by rich and famous musicians who could afford to rent it.
0: Oh, and there's one other thing you have to know. Don Buchla didn't believe
3: in keyboards. He was not a lover of the black and white keyboard. In fact, in his earlier instruments, he thought that all you're doing if you use the black and white keyboards, you're making another form of organ.
1: Instead, Buchler wanted to find new ways
2: of interacting with his instruments. They had keyboard-like things that were like arrays of metal touch plates that you could touch and interact with the instrument. They intentionally avoided references to familiar instruments or familiar interfaces because they were trying to figure out what types of interactions you could have with a machine. For example,
1: the Buchla 100 came with ten touch plates. The harder you pressed a plate the more intense and expressive the sound became. But none of those 10 plates had a fixed pitch. You could tune them to whatever you wanted.
2: The keyboard-like interfaces on Buchla's instruments were made so that you would have to kind of define your own scales if you wanted to use it in that way. That meant it was really hard to play traditional Western music on a Buchla.
0: if you wanted to play something weird and futuristic, the bukla was the synth for you. Ooh.
1: The fact is, Don never designed his synthesizers with pop music
2: in mind. There really wasn't a lot of, like, iconic bukla music the same way that there was for Moog music. It all remained very
3: obscure. He wasn't necessarily trying to make machines that he thought everybody should use. He was really designing them for people who he really respected. So
1: for avant-garde composers like David, they were the perfect tool.
3: There's something about them that blurs the distinction of composition and performance. You almost don't know whether you should use the word instrument because clearly they're used in live performance and you'd say, well, they're an instrument. But they also have a sort of way of adapting to a huge range of compositional ideas. There are certain things you could do quickly, and then there's a deeper layer of engagement with the software, embedding your own compositional and interactive performance ideas inside the instrument. After their first models came out,
1: both Don and Bob kept innovating. Bob created the first portable synth, the Minimoog, released in 1970. Due to its small size and simple interface, it quickly became popular with bands like Pink Floyd.
0: It was also used by Kraftwerk.
1: and it appeared on records by legendary funk band Parliament.
0: The Minimoog was the first
1: synthesizer for the masses, and it brought a whole new set of sounds to pop music. But while Bob's instruments were becoming more and more accessible, Don was going in a different direction. He released two updates to his original synth, which
0: he
3: worked on with David Rossenboom. We'd spent a lot of time talking about how to incorporate compositional thinking into the design of modules. And that led to certain modules that became pretty famous. Uh, The most well-known is probably the Source of Uncertainty module. That module took anything you played... And added random chaos to it. But somehow, that randomness was still musical. It would be a mistake to think of this module as purely a source of pure randomness. It's controlled randomness.
1: Ultimately, the dichotomy between Bob and Don's instruments came to be
2: known as East Coast and West Coast Synthesis. One of them gave musicians a clear opportunity to understand the device through terms they were already familiar with, that being the East Coast approach. And the other, this West Coast approach, was more about putting musicians out in the middle of the musical wilderness and forcing them to find their own way.
0: Pretty soon, the difference in philosophy turned into a
1: rivalry between musicians. For some people, Bob's synthesizers were just too traditional. On the other hand, some musicians said that Don's unpredictable machines didn't make music. They just made noise. It was kind of like the 70s equivalent of Nike versus Adidas. Or Nintendo versus Sega. What but regardless of the rivalry, both men considered their early instruments a success.
2: Both Moog and Bukla felt they had been successful with their inventions. With Moog, it's hard to debate. His invention caught on very quickly and was taken up by a lot of really amazing musicians and inspired a lot of other designers. Bukla, despite never really achieving great commercial success. Felt more interested in continuing to iterate on his ideas. He was happy to just make a living and chug along inventing new things. By the mid-70s,
1: the synthesizers designed by Bob were being heard by millions, thanks to their use on pop records. And Don's instruments were adored by the avant-garde composers he so admired. It was all going so well. But trouble wasn't far away. Before long, both Don and Bob would be struggling to keep their companies alive. Both would eventually lose the rights to their own names. And both would have to battle to stay relevant in the digital age. That's coming up next time.
0: 20,000 Hertz is produced out of the sound design studios
1: of DeFacto Sound. This episode was written, produced, and reported by Andrew Anderson.
2: It was story edited by Casey Emerling, With help from Grace East. It was sound designed and mixed by Chad Walbrink, Colin DeVarney, and Jai Berger.
1: With original music by Wesley Slover.
0: Thanks to our guests, Ryan Gaston and David Rossenbu. You can find Ryan's deep dives into synthesizer history over at perfectcircuit.com. Meanwhile, some of David's albums recorded using bookless synthesizers have recently been reissued. You can find those at blacktruffle.bandcamp.com. I'm Dallas Taylor. Thanks for listening.